All right, all right. Welcome to episode 11 of the Critical Social Worker, a revolutionary storytelling podcast. My name is Christian A. Stetler, and I'm a professor in the Department of Social Work at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. And this morning, I'm broadcasting live from Auk Bay in Juneau, Alaska. I always give everybody a little weather update. The weather's pretty mellow today and not too sunny, not too uh, cold or anything like that. I don't see any snow on the horizon. I see the... Uh, I was just talking to Laverne uh, before we started and sharing that uh, I know that the whales, the humpbacks are back because the whale boats are, the tourist boats are out there chasing them around. So I saw one out there this morning. But uh, I'm fortunate to be blessed with two co-hosts, two intrepid student co-hosts this morning. I've got Anne and Cisa. Anne's still trying to get connected. There she is. Uh, But how's it going, Cisa? It is going Fabulous. I was so happy to be home yesterday and the weather is warm here. There's lots of snow still on the ground. I'm the um, <clears throat> behavioral health aide in Huslia, way up in the interior or way down in the interior, wherever you might be calling in from. And on to you, Anne. Good morning. Uh... There's a lot of stuff going on right now, <laughs> so I forgot about the podcast, but I'm glad I made it on, and I hope my internet works throughout the podcast. We're glad you made it, and we're happy to have you. Um, well, all right, our special guest this morning is my colleague and mentor, Dr. Laverne Dementive. And uh, since both of my co-hosts here, Anne and Cisa, have been students, and are students, I should say are students of Laverne, I thought it might be fitting for, uh, for you to provide her introduction. Okay. Well, Laverne's been our instructor professor for a number of years now, and she comes from to us from Holy Cross area. She's been living in Fairbanks for quite a while, doing some magic work with social work students across the, actually from all over the place, because some people are not even from Alaska. So um, she's got a wide experience with um, working with a lot of people. She's got great insight into research methods and um, just cultural and traditional knowledge. Uh, If you ever have the opportunity to learn from her, I would encourage you to do so. Yeah, and we feel very grateful to have Dr. Laverne with us. Um, It's going to be a great episode. We've got a great episode planned for you this morning. We can't wait to get down to it, but there's a few things that we should cover, Cisa. All right, all right. And our special guest, or did I jump back? Yeah, hold on. I, it's okay, I got this part. The Critical Social Worker is supported by the Social Work Department at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. However, we just want to be clear that any opinions expressed on this podcast, be it by the host, guests, listeners, uh, uh, anyone calling in, they don't necessarily recognize Uh, reflect the values of the University of Alaska Fairbanks or the Department of Social Work or any other organization. Um, The opinions and ideas shared on this podcast belong to the speakers alone. And uh, that's important. If you don't like something that one of us says, I just ask you to please take it up with the individual. Uh, We have great opportunity to do that on the podcast. At the end, you're welcome to type in questions or concerns or comments into the chat box or to call in like a traditional radio station. so yeah, everybody's uh, opinions are our own and don't represent any organization. Um, our mission statement states, the Critical Social Worker podcast unfolds unique stories and diverse perspectives 
to foster critical dialogue, empathy, and understanding for all listeners through storytelling grounded in social work values. We aim to change ourselves and the world one story at a time. And uh, one of the underlying themes of that mission statement is obviously the idea of telling stories. We here at The Critical Social Worker believe that each individual is multi-layered with unique life experiences, and we want to help unfold some of these layers through stories that we can learn and grow from, stories that help build critical consciousness. One of the top-rated online VSW programs in the country is UAF Social Work. It's cheap and affordable in the state as far as tuition from anywhere in the world, caring and attentive faculty, indigenous focus, and so much more. Right on. Thank you. And if, uh, if you're interested in uh, the UAF Department of Social Work, then the best way to, to find us is just to search for UAF Social Work on Facebook or just do a Google search and it will take you right to us. Um, what about you? Those of you that are listening in, do you have a story to tell? Are you interested in coming on the show as a guest to tell your story, uh, to share your stories? If you are, then please just hit me up with an email. You can catch me at castetler at alaska.edu. That's C-A-S-T-E-T-T-L-E-R at alaska.edu. And uh, for those of you that like the podcast, um, one way that you can support us is very simple. Just go to, to, you can follow us on here on call in. But uh, I'd really appreciate it if you have the time to go on to Spotify or Apple and leave us a review. Um, That will help us build listeners, and it's the best way that you can support the show right now. Well, all right. I think it's time that we get this conscious party started for real. Hey, yo, everyone, gather around. It's story time. Brought to you by the University of Alaska Fairbanks, Department of Social Work, and the Conscious Party Productions. You are listening to The Critical Social Worker, a revolutionary storytelling podcast. A conscious party. Revolutionizing our minds. Elevating our consciousness. Changing our worlds. Your story. My story. Our our story. story. All right, all right. Well, it's story time uh, now, so... Despite all of us here on the podcast this morning, my two co-hosts and, and Dr. Laverne being spread out over the large state of Alaska, thousands of miles probably, just yesterday we were all in Fairbanks together to finish up our uh, cohort sessions for the semester. It almost feel like uh, those of us that flew into town that we arrived just about a week early. As the sun, as the last few days that we spent there, the sun was just starting to beam and the snow was just really starting to melt at a good pace. So I think it's safe to say that breakup where Fairbanks in the area is near. But anyways, I've always enjoyed the time that I've been fortunate enough to spend up north. And for this trip, I was able to spend some time with my daughter, Naya, on the Chena River. There were several pairs of swans, plenty of geese taking advantage of the opening water. And it reminded me of the last time that I was in Fairbanks for breakup. Although uh, my last period in Alaska, I spent most of my time uh, very far up north in Utiagovic, formerly known as Barrow, For most of my time as an undergraduate BSW student, I spent uh, my senior year in Fairbanks, where it was more convenient to find a practicum internship. Well, you'd think that moving from the Arctic Ocean 500 miles south would bring much warmer weather. Well, that's not always the case, and it might be the the truth in the summer. But let me tell you, Fairbanks is cold as hell in the winter. Really, really cold, like 30 to 40 below zero. And anyway, I survived the cold winter, 
And uh, really, it wasn't that bad. I mean, after all, I'd come from up north, so I was used to the cold. But I will say I had some adventures driving around the city of Fairbanks when uh, my truck lost its heater and I tried to navigate the roads with no defrost for a while. And then even waiting uh, when I started to use the bus system, it was some adventures, uh, you know, trying to catch the bus at the right time when it was 40 below zero. But uh, I think that's another story for another day. And right now I want to talk about springtime. Back uh, the breakup in Fairbanks back in 2015. It was my most meaningful set of experience I had had in Fairbanks. And also the last time I cut my hair, if you can see. So it's been a while. Um, but anyway, that's another story for another day, too. But that spring of 2015, I was uh, looking after a friend of mine's house and his dog while he was away out of the country. The dog was an old German shepherd named Doge, and he, had, he would ride everywhere with me. He'd get mad at me, like literally he'd give me dirty looks and wouldn't, basically wouldn't talk to me uh, if I didn't take him when I went out. And, um Doge was a trooper because he was really, really, really old. He couldn't even jump in the truck anymore, so I had to give him a big, his big fat butt a boost up into the truck. Uh, and I even had to help him down, too, because he'd hurt his hips trying to jump out. But anyway, my buddy's house was on the Chena River, and it was frozen over at the time. But every morning, me and Doge would walk down the ice on the river day by day, uh, watching the ice melt more and more until eventually we had to jump from piece to piece on the edge of the river. And eventually the river flowed free of ice. During that time, we hung out with moose, we hung out with beavers, we hung out with foxes. It was like a living meditation. You know, those walks down the frozen China River with Doge. And I remember jamming out to this tune by Morgan Heritage. It's called Down by the River. For those of you that don't know, I used to be a DJ and uh, my focus was on lyrics and finding meaning within them. But anyway, I've just been itching to talk about music since I don't have a radio show anymore. And I just wanted to uh, invoke a little bit of music into this podcast. So here's a little sample of that song. I've heard about this tale long time ago, but never have a faith no believe in my soul. Yeah, yeah. Now Mother Nature sent for me three little birds singing a song, singing with soul. Now I'm on my way. Anyone come to see me this day? Tell them I'll be gone for the day. Waiting for the good Lord to pass my way. Oh yeah, I'll be down by the river. Singing songs of joy on this lovely day. All right. I hope you enjoyed that little clip. That was Morgan Heritage. The song's called Down by the River. And I was totally digging that song uh, to hype us up, me and Doge, for our walks on the river. And I'm pretty sure Doge liked the song, too. At that time, I didn't believe in the good Lord that Gramps and Peter were singing about in the song. But listening to them while walking on the river with Doge sure made me wish that I did. But Doge died shortly after my buddy came back from Australia with a new baby. And I was thinking that maybe and invoking uh, some reggae music again, like Bob Marley sings in his song, Rasta Man Chant. He sings, one bright morning when my work is over, man will fly away home. And I was thinking, you know, maybe it was the same for Doge. He'd given his whole life to his friend, his good buddy that took care of him. But now that he was back, his lifetime friend, uh, now that his lifetime friend had come home with a new child, he realized that his work was done and he went home. So I just want to give a quick, a big shout out to my good friend Doge, an old dying German shepherd, 
whom I had the privilege of sharing his last days with on the Chena River. So rest in love, Doge. We miss you. Um, and this got me to thinking about something that I was reading on the airplane on the way home yesterday. It's from uh, this book. It's called uh, Restoring the Kinship Worldview, Indigenous Voices Introduced 28 Precepts for Rebalancing Life on Planet Earth. It's it right here. But anyways, it's by uh, a couple folks. One of them's name is Four Arrows, and the other one is Darsha Narvaez. And anyways, it's pretty cool. They, each chapter, they take an indigenous writer or an indigenous uh, thinker, and they include a writing from them, and then they, they dialogue on it. Um, but this one is kind of a trip because I read this on the airplane yesterday, and I knew that I wanted to use it on the podcast. And so this morning as I was preparing, I looked up the uh, writer of this chapter of this little uh, or the precept in this chapter, and uh, so I could pronounce his name correctly, Ilarion Merculeaf, and uh, I didn't realize that the, that this was actually a man that facilitated a workshop, a co-facilitated a workshop that Laverne and I had just attended when just when I had returned to Alaska. So it's really interesting how how you know in the universe things come full circle sometimes in unexpected ways. But anyways, this is what it says. It says, it's called An Emphasis on Heart Wisdom by Ilarion Merculeaf. So it says, since the age of six, I've known how to get out of my head. As one of the last Unangan to experience a true traditional upbringing, I was allowed to walk six miles from the village out to the bird cliffs, even as a very young child. In my six-year-old mind, I decided that the only difference between those birds and myself was that they drew upon a vast field of awareness rather than an intellectual thought process, although I did not use such words at the time. I wanted to be like a bird. So, after months of effort, I developed the capacity to maintain the state of awareness without thinking for several hours at a time. That was when the magic happened. I could see many things I'd never experienced before, and my world expanded enormously. But from then on, I understood how Unangan people received their spiritual instructions for living, principles that had helped them sustain their communities for thousands of years. Reciprocity with all living things, humility, respect for life, honoring elder wisdom, giving without expectation of a return to self, thinking of others first, and many more. Such spiritual principles for living did not come from logic or thought, but from a much deeper source of wisdom, which our Inongan culture referred to as the heart. When Inongan elders speak of the heart, they do not mean mere feelings, even positive and compassionate ones. Heart refer refers to a deeper portal of profound interconnectedness and awareness that exists between human beings and all living things. Centering oneself there results in humble, wise, connected ways of being and acting in the world. Indigenous peoples have cultivated access to this source as part of a deep experience and awareness of the profound interdependency between the natural and human worlds. To access it, you must drop out of the relentless thinking that typically occupies the Western mind. When accessed, this portal provides the inner wisdom that keeps us in right relationship with all of life, thus ensuring our long-term survival and well-being individually and collectively. Our fallible thought process regularly deceives us. Yet when guidance or information comes from the heart, it can be relied upon and has impeccable integrity. And now, or excuse me, and the most dire reversal is that now the mind tells the heart what to do instead of the mind following the heart. Still, when you access this heart center, you must have great courage to follow what it is telling you. Sometimes that feels like jumping from a cliff, but when you do, you'll never regret it. Once you have accessed the heart, 
You enter into the vast field of awareness in the company of birds and connect in a deep and profound way with all living things. And so, Laverne, I wanted to open up this dialogue by asking you about kinship with the land, with the natural environment. Um, you know, what he's talking about is heart wisdom here. Um, and I've experienced that a few times in my life. And one of those times were, was those experiences walking on the river. At, um, and it's just like he describes it in the, you know, in this precept. And so I've only experienced Fairbanks in the area, you know, as a visitor, really short-term visitor. But you come from the land, Laverne. And so I was wondering if you just might be able to share us a story or give us some insight into your experiences. Dogaden. Um, Dogaden. I'm so excited to be here. So Dogaden means thank you. Um, I just wanted to just kind of uh, introduce myself a little bit more uh, with my family and my ancestors uh, and where I'm from, just so people have a context of who they're hearing from. Um, but I just want to say thank you for, for uh, this podcast. I, I am so excited. <laughs> be on it and this is so fun i love the music i so appreciate um and i'm grateful for the that you bring in um, nature and animals i think anytime we have an opportunity to talk about relationship to nature um in relationship to animals and relationship to land culture spirit we should take it because um you know in a, uh in our world today that's what's lacking we've lost a lot of that relationship which you know when we have a relationship with something we really want to care for it uh, we really try to care for it um, and so the more that we can build that relationship and help support that relationship um, the better we all are for it uh, so that means hello everyone Haleg uh, so you can call me Haleg which actually means spring so I love that you're talking about spring too because that is um, the name that was given to me by my mentor Jim Dementi um, and uh, actually Laverne means spring in French as well and so it is truly my time of year. It's like my favorite time of year. And um, it's, uh, it's exciting here right now because um, everything is just starting to come back to life. And there's so much hope and possibility all the time. And the sunshine uh, gives us energy. And um, so everyone is starting to like get ramped up, get ready for the, get ready for the next season, which is summer. But um so Degatanitlan, that means I am Degatan, uh, Athabascan or Diné here in Alaska. And the Degatan people are in Southwest Alaska. Um, and we are um, one of the southernmost uh, Diné peoples. Um, and we, we uh, are close to the Yupik. So we border along Yupik uh, area as well. So we have a lot of shared customs and language and, and things like that. Um, my ancestors and, and family come from um, actually from the uh, area of Holy Cross and Anvik. Uh, my mom uh, specifically, my dad as well, but my dad also comes uh, from, um, he's Koyakon also and comes from Huslia. His grandmother was Edith Byfeld. Um, and so I think in some way, some way or fashion or form, I am related to Siza. <laughs> but um Anyway, so I, we, you know, we have uh, a rich history. Uh, I think about um, the elders uh, of my area and I'm grateful for them every, every day because they, um, you know, uh, really uh, brought forward um, this way of knowing this uh, worldview, this cultural understanding, this respect for the land and the, um, 
nature and spirit and culture. And I think about um, uh, my men elder mentors, uh, my language mentors, um, Jim Dementi and Edna Deacon specifically. You know, I think about the challenges that um, they were faced with uh, as they, as our um, life, as their lives changed through colonization, and definitely um, all of the challenges that came with boarding schools and missions and um, and things like that, colonization, uh, assimilation practices. And I'm just so grateful because they continued to carry uh, this cultural, the cultural practices of our area and the language through that challenging time. And so that someone like me today in 2023 can actually benefit from that. Uh, and um, I can't, you know, express enough gratitude and I can't imagine the, the challenge to do that. Um, but now my responsibility to really bring that forward into, into the future. Um, I didn't grow up in Holy Cross and Anvik. Uh, both my parents lived in Holy Cross and went to the Catholic mission that was there. Um, and we had a fish camp right below Anvik uh, for a long time when I was young. And um, But I grew up in Ninana, so I'm very influenced by the Tanana Athabascan people um, the, of the Ninana region. And I just remember being young, very young, and... Um, being a part of their potlatches in the in the George Hall there and um, you know just going into the George Hall when there was a celebration or some sort of event where people were singing and the floor would just be bouncing with the beat of the drum and people singing and dancing with me so hard um, around uh, everyone just everyone um, and so it has like an imprint in my on my soul and my spirit um, about you know, how to be. And um, so I just really like to give them uh, honor too, because I think that they helped raise me. And then I moved to Anchorage uh, because we, my mom had to be close to a hospital. And so, um, uh, you know, when, um, when we moved to Anchorage, that was uh, totally different, but there was lots of, lots of blessings in that too. So um Anyway, I just wanted to, to give a little bit of background just so, you know, that one of the things I think is really important as we engage together in a good way is really building um, our understanding of each other as much as we can through that relational process. What is What relationships are important to me? And so I love that you brought in uh, the, the connection to land and to the environment because um, that's who we are. I was actually, I did my uh, dissertation on degaton wellness and... Um, uh, and, you know, I, I asked one of my elders, uh, actually, Jim, uh, um, what does wellness mean to you um, from a degaton perspective? And I, I shared this in class, too. Um, it's, it's super interesting to think back because maybe this was about 15 years ago. And he really kind of just looked at me um, for a long time. It was one of those looks where you're just kind of he's staring into my soul for, you know, just really looking at me, um, exploring my intentions and what I'm what I'm trying to ask. And and he finally shared, you know, that wellness is the way that we live our lives. And um, at the time, it didn't really hit me. But today, it's one of the most profound things that uh, I've ever um, really uh, heard and understood about wellness. And so what that meant for him was, what, you know, wellness is the way that we live our lives. It's really that connection to the land, to each other. It's his, um, 
time with family, fishing and hunting and um, being being on the land. It's being in the Kajim. It's connected to spirit. It's dancing and singing, right? But, so that is wellness to him. And I think, you know, um, uh, he, he, he and um, my family were a big part of my, um, my upbringing and my growing into who, who I have become and what I do, which is focusing a lot on, on wellness and healing. I just want to honor them with that, just highlighting some of the, the gratitude and just, um, you know, I think, I think so differently about wellness now, right? We have all kinds of definitions in the world about what wellness looks like, but wellness is ultimately contextual. It's what we have um, pretty much right next to us within our environment um, that we can access easily and draw upon daily. That's what uh, feeds our wellness. And so I think we have to be really thoughtful about that as we um, support others and in, in enhancing their own wellness and well-being. So um, I'm not sure that quite answered your question, but I, I definitely wanted to um, have a little bit of discussion about that, but within the context of who I am and, and just giving some gratitude to my ancestors and elders. I love that you brought Alarian Merculia in the conversation. Um, definitely uh, is someone I, I've looked up to for a very long time. Uh, his wisdom is so profound. And I think that's, um, he highlights the possibilities. And I'm just gonna stop for one second. I'm getting a little bit of feedback, so I wanna make sure everyone can hear me okay. It sound, I don't hear any feedback on my end. Okay. If anybody who any, has any troubles in the chat, just let us know. Awesome. Um, but yeah, so, you know, he, for me, he highlights the possibilities of who we are as human, human beings. Uh, I remember listening to him, um, talk about, um, you know, he, he, uh, asked an elder because, you know, so much of the masks in, in his area were gone kind of the same as our area. And, um, and he wanted to, um, you know, know how to bring those back. And he talked to an elder and he, and the elder said, go, out into nature and um, and ask, you know, to sit, be, listen and see what comes to you. And so he did this as a young boy. He went out to the sea or to the shore um, by the sea and he sat there for hours just closing his eyes, meditating. And he said all of a sudden all of these images of masks started flowing through his mind and, um, you know, coming to him and he um, he talked about he had never seen these masks and he had never um, known these masks um, and then he started to reproduce them or not you know to 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 create them um, but those were given to him right by a, a spirit or the energy of the world and the universe however you want to look at that but those were given to him and so I think that I love um, listening to Alarian he's got a lot of great podcasts or not podcasts but like uh, TED talks and in videos on YouTube if you ever want to listen to him he is so profound and um, highlights the possibilities of the human experience I think and I'll stop there so glad to be here so excited <laughs> yeah thank you for everything that you shared thank you for introducing yourself in a in a, in a much more profound way. Um, you know, speaking of Valerian, it, it, like I was saying about full circle, it's, it's weird how the universe kind of plants gifts. I mean, who, what's the odds of me reading a, a book about a bunch of different people. And then the one I'm reading on the airport coming back from Fairbanks, preparing for the podcast turns out to be somebody that we just shared space with not even a year, or I guess a little over a year ago. Um, so that's really incredible. 
But I want to talk a little bit more about like when he when he mentions the heart wisdom, because it's something I've noticed specifically with you, Laverne. Um, you know, you were a, back in when I was talk, telling the story back in 2015, where you were my professor back then in the years preceding that. And one thing that I've noticed about you since, you know, being away from you for uh, almost, I guess, almost a decade was that was seeing the way I, I already had uh, a very high level of respect for you and the, the things that you the, your teaching style, the things that you had helped me with. But it's really elevated significantly since then because I've, I see how much else you've incorporated into the way that you teach and the way that you really the way that you carry yourself, whether that's be lead, facilitating a meeting or leading a class or whatever. I think uh, what I you were very, again, you were a very good professor back then. But I think you were a little bit more like on like the the you know right hemisphere of the brain type of a teacher, whereas it seems like in in those years since you've really added more balance to your classroom, which I think fits more in, in, from my opinion, more in line with your, you know, your personality and the way that you carry yourself. And so, you know, I just want to ask if you, maybe you could share a little bit about if you've had some, you know, transformed, I know, and I know at this time you've earned a PhD in that time and whatnot, but you know, was that, was there a transformative experience or set of experiences? How did you come to, you know, and what I'd say incorporate, like uh, with Alarian says, incorporate that heart wisdom, uh, into your classroom and, and, you know, not just the right intellectual side, but, you know, incorporating that left hemisphere thinking or less, I should say left hemisphere experiencing. Yeah. It's so interesting that you said 10 years ago. And that's so fascinating to me because um, my uncle probably right about 10 years ago um, actually came uh, to talk to me. So I, I've been here at the university for 17 years. It'll be 18, I think, in January, January 6th. Um, so I was about seven years in, maybe. Um, and my uncle, um, who is my teacher um, and guide and mentor, um, came and, and said, I want, I would like to talk with you. Um, and so we, we um, sat down and he said, I'm, I just wanted to share that, you know, I'm concerned um, because you're in this, you know, big institution, this system. And when you're in these institutions and systems, you can really get kind of lost in your headspace, right? Um, where you're thinking about deadlines and you're planning and, or you're worrying about the future, you're thinking, you're, you're, you're constantly um, working from this space. And he said, I want you to practice something for me every day because I don't want you to get sick or anything to happen to you. And I want you to be happy in this space. And um, he said, I want you to practice moving from your head to your heart every day. Um, and that was a beginning for me um, when I started practicing moving from my head to my heart space within the institution. It transformed me. It shifted the way that I walked through the world. Um, it shifted my own compassion for myself, which gave me more compassion for my students and compassion for my colleagues. It allowed me to engage in a different way. Um, and, you know, I was more confident. I was more comfortable um, and, um, and hopeful. And so I think that, you know, that was a really profound experience and actually probably one of the biggest lessons of my life that I would, you know, if anything, if anybody took anything from today would re really be really practicing that skill. It's a, it's one of the most powerful things we can do as human beings, right? And we um, get caught up in our headspace because of the fast pacedness of the world, right? Like we get um, inundated by so much information all the time and by just so much uh, 
um, stuff. Um, and, you know, taking a moment to go, you know, from your head to your heart will help you ground and help you engage at higher levels so you can do your work even more effectively. And so, you know, I think for some people, um, and, and, and even for me in the beginning, you know, having to figure out how do I do, how do I do that? Like what brings me to my heart space? Um, what does that look like for me? And I have to say that um, there has been a number of things over the years. One, for me now, I can, I can actually put my hand on my heart, take a deep breath. And that brings me to my heart space. That brings me here, right? And so I can move here pretty quickly. Um, you can also think about, like, I, I, co I do uh, some co-teaching with elders, as you know, as you do as well. Um, and that, the elders, when they share, they share from this place, um, from a place of heart, from a place of spirit, from a place of wholeness. And so even just thinking about elders and engaging with elders can bring me to my heart space. For some, you bring in pets and dogs and, and animals, like people, for some that can bring people to their heart space, thinking about their pets, thinking about their children or nieces and nephews, you know, just a sweet, proud moment. Like all of these things can bring us, just our connection to nature, right? Just the, the beauty of the earth, a sunset, like all those things can bring us to our heart space. But I think it's the practice that we have to do to be able to stay in that space, to be able to navigate the world in that space. Um, and so it's just a continuous uh, awareness and reflection to kind of try to go into this space. Um, and it, and the beautiful thing about the heart space or being compassionate is that it is catchy. It's not only catchy, it's actually like healthy. It's healthy for your, um, for your blood pressure, for, for, you know, for your um, telomeres, like, you know, thinking about your brain health, like uh, all your organs to be compassionate, to be in your heart space is a very healthy place to be. And, um, and it's catchy. So when you show up, in your heart space, when you show up in a space, I, I go into all kinds of meetings here at the university with my heart space. I talk about love, I talk about um, compassion, I talk about all of these things in these spaces. Um, and you know, I think for, for some it may be uncomfortable, but for most people, um, they are yearning for that too, right? We are all wanting to be in this space, uh, but we get caught up in the, the systems and the, the structures that exist uh, that, um, that create barriers to, to that, right? And create barriers to connection because things are always so siloed and um, um, sterile a little bit, right? So we have to intentionally do that in these spaces. And whenever I do that, it's catchy, right? People will start also being in, being in their heart space. Um, and it's, it's, we want to, it's a, it's a natural tendency to want to live here. Uh, we just get caught up in the stress and the, and all of the other stuff. So um, anyway, that I, I, this is like one of my favorite uh, things to talk about. So I could probably go on and on, but I just encourage like the other thing, you know, that I think we have an opportunity to do as helpers um, is always just practice together like we have an opportunity to create a community of care a culture of care everywhere we go in every system in every space 
um, and we can talk about it, we can model it, we can share it, we can practice it together, and then it becomes normal, right? It becomes more normalized. Right now in our society and culture, we just don't have that culture of care that's um, built in quite yet. We have, again, silos of cultures of care, um, but we haven't expanded that and uh, really, really uh, built that. So that would be just my thoughts on that. Yeah, thank you so much for that. Um, and you know, I think tapping into that heart wisdom, thinking, feeling from your heart, one of the things that's so counter to, you know, the modern day dominant culture is that it takes time. Um, you know, I guess you should say it doesn't have a linear sense of time. And so oftentimes those of us, you know, when I first participated in the talking circles, I was like, yeah, I think these things take forever. People are talking forever. Um, but like, as I participated um, in those circles over time, they it created a transition in me and I started to hear people talking from the heart where I wasn't able to hear it before. It's, we it's really weird to think about, but I really wasn't able to hear it. You know, one of the things I talk about in this book that I was sharing too often, and even, um, you know, like Dr. Gabor Mate taps into this in his work, but that validates my experience. When I was a child, you know, I felt like, I didn't feel like I had this voice inside of me. And we'll call it a voice, a voice, a feeling, whatever, which I look at as now my heart or my conscience, whatever you want to, word you want to use speaking to me. And uh, I always used to wonder about like certain things about the world. Like this doesn't make sense. Like it doesn't, it's not even logical when it, like in comparison to what my heart or my heart logic was telling me. And then slowly over time, you know, uh, that voice got drowned out into all these insecurities and anxieties and other things from the, from my experience in the world. And I didn't hear it anymore. And it took me into my, you know, like my thirties to, to finally hear that again. And, you know, part of the, part of that was experiencing things like the talking circles, you know, the experiences, like I mentioned, um, the walks on the river among many others. Um, and it can be uncomfortable when you first tap into that because, you know, it's not, it's, it's not what you're used to and it's counter to everything you've been taught and all, to many of our experiences. Um, but what can be even more uncomfortable is sharing it with others when, you know, in the beginning. And I know you mentioned that, that some people may be uncomfortable. And so I've been studying talking circles and, and utilizing talking circles for, for many years now. And uh, when I was in Hawaii, I was an adjunct professor at, at a Hawaii Pacific University, social work. And uh, I invoked the talking circles and I would introduce, I introduced the first time I, not the first time, but every time I would introduce the talking circles by invoking grandmother Rita Blumenstein. And then I'd simply ask them to share what was on their heart in the first circle. And, you know, about at least half or maybe more of them kind of like give me the look, like, what does that mean? And, you know, can people pass? But without exception, every time that I've uh, facilitated this by the end of the semester, or the end of my time with them, uh, we do focus groups and talk about the experience. And everybody says that was the most, one of the most impactful moments for them was being asked to share what was on their heart, being confused and insecure about that. But then other folks did it, including myself. You know, I always make sure to model it myself. Um, that it was just a pr profound, meaningful moment for them, and it allowed them to open up their heart. But, you know, I'd still say that I still get uncomfortable, especially when maybe it's people that I'm unsure about. Um, with the, not just talking circles, but like, say, you know, invoking a meditation at the beginning of a class or something like this. And I've seen you do this so well. That's why I want to ask you about it, uh, Laverne. You seem so confident. But, you know, um, I've invoked, say, the meditation several times, like I've seen you do. Um, 
But usually when I'm, say I'm reading the meditation with the music or whatever, it feels like it takes forever. And I'm thinking like everybody else is going to be like thinking it's dragging on and all these insecurities are rolling in my head. And that's not the actual reflection I get from folks. Uh, I mean, there's people that don't participate or whatever. But for the most part, it seems to like liberate them to be able to do it themselves. It's like, as you mentioned earlier, too. And so I was just wondering if you could share a little more experience about how you became comfortable not only accessing or tapping into that wisdom yourself, but how, do you, how did you get so comfortable and so good at, at delivering or facilitating those kind of things? Yeah, those are great questions. I am thinking of, um, you know, when I first came to the university, uh, I really struggled uh, with uh, who I was and my own uh, my own self-worth and thinking about, you know, do I belong here? I'm not sure that I fit in or what will people think of me if they knew my past, for example, or, you know, um, I don't seem to be the, 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 the type of person that would be doing this. And um, anyway, I had a lot of those thoughts and it was, you know, a lot of energy. So, you know, the systems that we're in, again, just really set us up to, um, to one, um, disconnect from each other, um, and to really, um, you know, work towards, um, work towards trying to please the external from us. Right. And so like, we're always like trying to fit in or just, you know, thinking about like, how, how, how do we, um, measure up or, you know, the, the, the you know, com competition and, um, but, you know, when I talk with my elders or when I'm in spaces of community, um, that doesn't exist, right? So it's like, how do I bring myself, my whole self, because we are all whole people. We bring all of our experiences to every space that we're in. And when you're in a space and you're spending a lot of time, trying to suppress a part of you right um, or trying to be something that you're really you know maybe it's not exactly who you are but you think that this is how you should be there's a lot of energy expended in that um, that takes away from your creativity and your um, your light right and so um, I think somewhere along the way uh, probably about like 10 years ago when my uncle really started talking to me about these things and helping me navigate. I also was, um, I've always been doing my own healing work. I've done that for a very long time, whether it was therapy, traditional healers, um, uh, helpers, any, anything that really, you know, leadership programs, I think anything that I could do to really understand my experiences, um, and how to navigate them, I tried. And that's been really helpful. Um, I, I have a lot in my mind right now, so I'm going like a, a ton of different places. But, um, but, you know, showing up as a whole human being, right? That is, that is the goal. When we can actually show up and be who we are in the world, that's where our power lies. So my Aunt Rose, when I was very young, when I was growing up, she would say, the women in our family are very powerful people. Um, they have the abilities to do things, to heal, um, and they're they're very powerful. So I always knew, like I always had that in my mind, and I always knew that that was part of my my DNA, my my in my genes. Like I feel strong because I know my ancestors were so strong, not just physically but spiritually and mentally, and I I feel that running through my body. And I think that um, that's something that. Um, 
we can help others to kind of tap into as well, because all of our ancestors really, really, um, you know, in order to survive and the reason that you're here, they had to be resistant and resilient and, and strong and do the thing that things that they needed to do. And, um, and we have that within us anyway. So thinking about showing up as a whole human being um, was something that I had to, to um, do a lot of healing around. The more that I did that, the more that I realized that all of the pieces of myself from my childhood and from my experiences, um, the things I felt shame around, um, that these are things that also gave me strength and, and were part of my identity. And that, um, you know, uh, there was no, there was nothing to be, nothing to fear within that, honestly. Um, and so I, I came to that space and I think that, you know, helping people navigate that we all want to show up whole and human um, even into spaces where like the university or, or organizations and systems we all yearn for acceptance and uh, care to be cared about uh, to be liked um, and I think that um, I think that for me it's really it was really about uh, I recognize that when I when I really realize like I could be whole and I could be myself in these spaces. I could be me, Laverne, Degaton, Athabaskan, daughter of Rudy and Alice Dementeth. Like that was really empowering. And that, and that's where I feel most confident and most successful. And, um, and I want that for others. And, um, and I want to help support that and create those spaces so others can be their whole selves because that's where people's creativity will flourish, where they will feel most successful. Um, they'll find most joy or peace even. Right. And so um, it's never, it's, I still sometimes get uncomfortable, but um, and, you know, I tell people, I always preface like, because everyone's at their own stages and levels. I always say, you know, meditation may not be for you but you know we are we i know we all have busy lives i know that we have things coming at us stress and sometimes anxiety or just worries about the future or excitement or whatever it is always coming at us so meditation is an opportunity or even just um you know uh, a visualization or whatever it is it's an opportunity to close your eyes and rest for one minute in your day give yourself that give yourself that um moment to just rejuvenate right to to even just get a second to think if you need to think about something else like it give it you know rest some I had one person totally fall asleep perfect perfect like they probably needed that you know what I mean like um so there's no judgment I think that's the other piece around this there's just no judgment right so you don't have to um, do this with me. I had one person laugh as I was doing a meditation. Um, and, 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 you know, I, there's no judgment, right? You, it's okay for people will experience it however they can, but if they're taking away at all, like, you know, that a meditation, meditative process, um, are going internal for just a second is just an opportunity. It's an opportunity in your day to experience something different, to learn and grow in a different space, to be able to utilize um, a different way of being. And in, in, in the university system, I always say, you know, meditation, doing some deep breathing, um, being uh, really honoring our whole selves helps students 
come back into their bodies because students come to these spaces with, with um, you know, just like, ah, oh, I, I got to really pay attention and learn and I have a test and I got this and I got that. And, you know, they're, you know, but when we create those spaces, they can come back into their body, take a deep breath and they're going to learn. They're going to be able to learn better. They're going to be able to recall information better. They're going to be able to retain information and remember. Um, they're going to engage better when they're in their bodies and when they're relaxed and when they're supported for being their whole selves. Anyone here at the university will say that their job is to help students be successful, right? And so that's just a tool. It's one tool to be able to do that. And so, uh, and, and we also can't just tell students to do stuff. We have to do it ourselves too. Like we have to be that, right? That's, so um, whether it's meditation or something else that people choose, recognizing that, you know, being able to be whole and showing up as whole human beings is a powerful thing. So because I know that, I think I feel less um, worried that someone's going to be like, you know, this is not for me, or I'm not going to engage, or I, this is, you know, whatever. I mean, it, that's okay. Like, I think that whole aspect of, I'm not here to, to make you do anything or judge you, right, really. Um, it's just about new experiences and trying to, to, to do this, you know, do life together in a good way, so. Yeah, you make me think about it like a reciprocity, a gift without expectation of anything in return. And when you mentioned, um, you know, say somebody fell asleep during your meditation, when school, you know, I remember growing up and I'd, I was always tired. I had trouble sleeping. And so I'd, I'd be in school and I'd fall asleep and, you know, I always get in trouble for it. And, you know, we're, I think it's, that's the way of our world, right? Like somebody falls asleep in our class or even our meditation. We're like, oh, this is obviously not working like it's supposed to, but you know, school can be hard and life can be hard and it can be tiring. So why would we be upset because somebody, uh, we gave somebody a gift and it didn't work out the way we want. We expected it to maybe, but it was a gift of them getting a little rest, a little sleep. That's a gift in itself. And it's exactly perhaps what they needed. So I appreciate, you know, you sharing that context. And I think we can also look at ourselves that way. Um, you know, I mentioned my trouble sleeping. I always used to feel guilty or something about, you know, being tired and not being able to fulfill certain things in the morning. But, you know, I was my world was a little bit messed up at certain times, you know, and I needed that rest. I didn't have the energy and there's nothing there's nothing to feel guilty about that. And so, you know, both applying that to ourselves and, and to other folks, you know, it's easy to get into like that habit of thinking that everything needs to be so efficient and needs to work exactly like we intended it to. Um, but it's, you know, it sounds like, you know, when the person fell asleep or even when they laughed, maybe the one person needed humor and some person needed some rest. Um, so I appreciate you sharing that and uh, pivot a little bit, but I feel drawn in two directions based on the way you're uh, on the things that you've talked about. So I want to come circle back in a moment and talk about, give you an opportunity to talk about the five C's and how that founds, uh, or, you know, how that informs what you do the way that you operate. But you mentioned ancestry a couple of times, and it's just really relevant uh, right now with what's happening in my life. Um, you know, no, I had my whole life, I had no idea about anything to do with ancestry or going back or, you know, anything at all. And so later on in life, you know, I took a, you know, one of those DNA tests, which really didn't give me much insight at all, just from everywhere. Um, and then uh, fortunately, the, uh, the LDS church, the Mormons, they keep very good genealogical records. And I'm from Utah. And so many of my ancestors um, moved to Utah for because they were recruited by the Mormon church. 
And so I can go onto their website and I can look back like generations with stories, uh, you know, audio people would have audio recordings, tons of photos. And so at first it was weird for me because there was things I really didn't, you know, want to affiliate myself with like one of uh, the town that I grew up in. I had no idea, but the, basically the leader of the town, who's the mayor, the president of the bank, a Senator. Um, we used to visit his house as a, uh, when I was a kid in school because they have a, he has a historic house and his name's Daniel Heiner. And he was, uh, that's my mom's last name. And I was thought, Oh, that's, you know, he has the same last name as me. That's interesting. And looking up on gene genealogy, I'm a direct descendant of the guy. And, you know, I was really made fun of and kind of abused in that town. And I wish I could have went back with the power of knowing that that's, you know, despite me not really wanting to be affiliated with polygamy and whatnot. Um, you know, it was a little bit of power to know that like I came from some, somebody that was something and anyways, um, I haven't focused too much in that direction, but, you know, looking at uh, ancestors all the way around, like I started to develop a relationship. It's really like if you'd have told me this a little while back, I'd, it's, it wouldn't have made sense to me. But slowly this like these relationships started to build that I really can't explain. And then to tie it into meditation, I um, somebody sent me a meditation out of the blue and I thought it was strange and it was an ancestor meditation. So it's called uh, connecting with your ancestors. And so I've probably tried it like seven times, just to estimate. And the first six times, like I really didn't take it that seriously. I was just kind of like trying to see what it was and I'd fall asleep. I'd, I thought it was in interesting, but I really didn't tap into anything. And then in Fairbanks the other night, um, maybe Wednesday night, I put it on and I took it very seriously. And I, you know, followed the directions as much as I could. And like, it made me emotional and, uh, and it got to this part where it was asking you to, you know, visualize your ancestors uh, joining you. And like immediately when that happened, like somebody, it felt like somebody was holding my hand. Like I'd never experienced anything like that in the world. And I still can't explain it. And I still don't think I was able to get anywhere near where I, to the level that I could. But, um, you know, it was just a really profound experience for me tapping into that. And I was wondering if... Uh, you know, I don't even have a, a direct question for you, but do you have a story or any insight or anything, you know, about an experience or a set of experiences that you've had? Yeah. Well, <clears throat> I keep looking at Siza because she's, she's, um, she's someone who actually shows up as, as her whole self and uh, works from that heart place a lot. Um, and she probably has a lot to say about ancestors too. So I just want to encourage you to, um, add anything you want, Siza, because, um, you know, that's, I, I just really value your experience in that too. Um, my, I, so our ancestors, I grew up um, with, a, you know, having um, just an understanding that our ancestors were around. Um, my mom would always um, talk about our ancestors and, um, you know, whenever, we um, sometimes think about them, we'll feed them, uh, give, make them a plate uh, um, to help them, to help feed them. And um, there's just lots of ways that we, you know, we have songs about our ancestors. We talk about their stories. Like we just, um, we know that, that, that they had like, you know, so much love for their people and for, um, and dreams for us, um, future generations. And, um, 
So I, I've always felt that, but, you know, I didn't, I didn't grow up with grandparents in the sense that my own two, my own grandparents on my mom and dad's side passed when they were little, when my mom and dad were little. So they didn't talk about them a lot. And um, I had um, peripheral grandparents, like community elders. Right. So that um, was something that I had, but when I, when I was um, again, you know, uh, when I became an adult, I had a conversation with my uncle and he was talking about my grandpa, Joe, um, my grandpa, Joe Frank, and you know, how he just like, just different things about him. And uh, well, previous to that, I was in a, a language learning class and the elders uh, at the time were talking about my grandpa, Joe, like a human being, like, like they, they actually knew him and they were talking about how he was and how funny he was and he would, everybody would play cards at his house on a certain night and, um, in Reindeer Lake. And, um, and I was like, oh my gosh, I just had never known him as a person, as a, you know, as a human. So I was like, so drawn to that. And then, um, my, I was talking with my, uh, my uncle and he was talking about his dad, which is my, my grandpa, Joe. And he was saying, um, you know, just tell me a story about him. And I said, I asked him a question. I said, so, did Joe so-and-so, so I can't remember the question that I asked him. And he said, who is Joe Frank to you, Laverne? And I said, um, I kind of stood back. I was like, oh, um, my grandpa, my grandfather. And he goes, have you claimed him as that? Like, have you asked him to come into your life? Have you, have you um, asked him for help? Have you talked with him? You know, have you built a relationship with him? And I, it was like uh, a moment in my life that I didn't realize how um, it just was so profound because I realized I could have still a relationship that was someone with someone that was not physically here. Right. And um, at the same time I was working with some traditional healers and they had brought me, um, I was doing some work with them and they, uh, one of the, the, the traditional healers brought me into um, and created a, uh, sacred space, right? So I did a meditation where I created my sacred space. And, and in that sacred space, it was like my fish camp when we when I was really young. So our fish camp was, um, um, was like I said, right below Anvik. Um, and I used to always try to walk into it was like Peter Solomon Slough. I think that's the, the name of the area. But uh, I used to always try to walk in the woods so that we had a big clearing on the bank and there was a tent and fire and we had a cache and, um, you know, uh, fish, um, hanging fish and, and all of that. And, and then there was woods all around us. And I would always, as a little girl, try to like step into the woods as much as I could, like just even just a little bit. But, you know, my parents would always say that's don't go too far. You're going to get lost. It's dangerous. There's animals, those kinds of things. But I would always get like, um, I'd always want to try to go in as far as I could um, and push that boundary. And so in my, in my sacred space, I actually came in from the, from when I walked into my sacred space, which I knew was my fish camp. Um, I walked through those woods from the other side. So I'm walking into the woods and I came into my sacred space and I could see my dad sitting there. It's always like midnight and it's, you know, in, in summertime, it's not dark, but maybe a little bit dim, but uh, the water is just peaceful and calm. And he's sitting by the fire canning fish. Uh, my mom's sleeping in the tent. I could feel it all really, really well. And my mom and dad had passed prior to this. Right. And, um, 
And so I go and sit down, you know, in my sacred space and I'm, I'm being led by this traditional healer. And she's saying, you know, what's, what do you smell? What's happening? You know, what do you hear? And I have my dog, I had a little beagle named killer. So sometimes he's sitting at the foot of our, uh, the foot of us and, you know, um, things are really quiet and peaceful. And I sit by my dad this is going to make me cry. <laughs> um, but you know, so, so the traditional healer, really asked, um, you know, what, what do you want to say to your dad? And so I was saying things to my dad, maybe that I, I didn't have an opportunity to say or to do, right? My dad would, loved me and I knew that, uh, but he was also an alcoholic. He was a beautiful, beautiful man. He was so giving and loving. So many people loved him. He was a river man, knew so much. Um, he only went to third grade in the mission, but he could build our, he built our houseboats. He provided for a family of 10. He was so strong and loved his family, but he also had trauma and he also was an alcoholic. Right. And so, um, so there wasn't a lot of like hugging or like, um, intimate like supports. Right. And so in my, in that space, that sacred space, I realized that, I could still have a relationship with my dad in the way that really I needed it. Um, and so I built that with him and um, was able to hug him or just sit by him and, and snuggle and just, you know, feel him loving me. Um, and I, and, and that was a really, I think that time when I was really kind of exploring this uh, with my ancestors, recognizing like, wow, I can have a relationship with people that are still not here. Um, and that relationship is so profound. Um, it was really beautiful. So I carry that today. I have a relationship um, uh, with with people uh, have passed um, and my ancestors and just really, and I was so grateful for them. We call them in when we need them so they can come into this space with us right now and just be with us. And they are, they just are, they will, they want all the best for us. So I would say that is one of the experiences with ancestors. And I just wanted to say, um, oh, I had another thought, but um, yeah. So I, I think, um, oh, so epigenetics, right? Then, you know, what, 10 years ago, this whole uh, field of epigenetics kind of started. And a lot of the things that they were talking about in epigenetics were about how the experiences of our ancestors, um, especially like um, potentially like if our ancestors experienced a lot of stress or trauma, how that um, sometimes opened up their genes uh, for disease or illness, like, you know, just, just extreme stress and your environment can open up your genes to, to, um, uh, to create like uh, diabetes or, um, cancer or other things and some of that can get passed forward right in our in our in our dna in our cells and so um so i learned about that and i was like you know that makes so much sense right we when people experience certain things that that gets some of that gets passed forward and then i was thinking wait a second that's it can't just be like one-sided can't just be that the bad stuff gets passed forward right because i grew up knowing that my ancestors were strong and that was a part of me so i was like Okay, so I know I have also a history of, of, um, uh, or my family telling me all kinds of stories of our strength. So, um, my uh, cousin Luke Dementev, he was maybe I can't remember if he's ninety five. He just passed in Holy Cross, um, 
And he was telling me stories of when he was like 18. And he said, you know, when he first met his wife, Alice, he, um, and they've been together ever since, right? Um, he was going to take her to one of the, the potlatch dances. And before he do th did that, though, he needed to run to his trap line. And so he ran in snowshoes to his trap line, which was like 30 miles away, um, and then ran back and then danced all night. And I don't know what the time frame was for all of that, but I was just like, wow. And then, you know, I think that um, in our area, we had runners that would run from village to village to give messages and to tell people of the upcoming feasts and to, you know, all of the, all of those types of things. People were so physically strong, more than we can, I think we can ever really understand, um, but really uh, highlights what our, the potential of our own bodies and minds and spirits are. And um, so I have that, right? And so I'm thinking about epigenetics and recognizing that all of that strength, mental strength, spiritual strength, connection to the land and physical strength, all of that shapes ourselves as well and gets passed forward too. So we have that within us. So I think it's, if you look at it from that place, that is a really hopeful thing about epigenetics that we, as we live our lives and really work towards our own healing and, um, you know, strength in, in all kinds of ways, then that gets passed forward into the future as well. And so, um, yeah, a little bit, a little bit of my thoughts about ancestors. So yeah, I just want to say thank you so much for, sh you know, for sharing these stories and your experience. It's very meaningful. Um, you know, I, I'm just beginning, like, again, I'm just beginning to tap in to, to ancestry. But, um, you know, there's a few things that you mentioned that just resonated with my life experience when, you know, I had kind of a hard life as a, as a youth and a young adult. And one of the things that I did frequently was walk a lot of places, um, both when I like different times in my life, when I was a drug addict, when I was homeless, when um, even as a kid, just to get from place to place, um, I would always use my own two legs and go like super long distances. And I always had felt like, cause people couldn't do it with me. And I wasn't, it's not like I was in good shape or anything at that time. People couldn't do it with me. And I always wondered like, what was it, um, that allowed me to do that? And I always had felt like somebody was, something was helping me. And then when I look back on my ancestry, uh, I had like, for example, I had this, uh, she would be my fifth grandmother. Her name was Matilda and she crossed her there was no room for her in the wagon so she walked across the whole united states to utah uh, on foot and almost died a couple of times from being sick the the united states in that such in such a way but um it did a couple of things, you know, it, it gave me like some insight into my life and that, you know, I wasn't always alone. You know, you see the, um, I've often, I've often seen the, you know, the little photo of the two footprints in the sand and they usually refer um, to Jesus, which I'm not um, saying that that's not, not, uh, that that's not uh, real or anything like that. But for me, like when I look back, it was like, an, like my ancestors were walking with me and the, the walking that they did prepared me and gave me the strength You know, a lot of times when I go to Fairbanks, I decline a, a car or whatnot because I like to get out and walk. It's just a part of who I am. Uh, but the other side to that was that, um, you know, the healing aspect of it. 
there's some intergenerational trauma from that family that I mentioned, you know, that descends from polygamy, where at one point, the different, you know, there's various sides that come into play, but seem to be extreme, like the Lady Matildas, they seem to be extremely family oriented. And if you look at all those old photos, you know, everybody was so close. And I wonder what happened. I mean, I have some insight to that. But I almost I, I look at my life, you know, everything that I do at this point as as a spiritual journey for myself. And this is just recently that I've path for myself but um you know i feel called almost on the spiritual journey to maybe not perform but to participate in and maybe facilitate in some regards that intergenerational healing that needs to happen so that like you said moving forward for my children they don't have that intergenerational trauma and also my ancestors i help them maybe we help each other resolve that and so that it doesn't continue into to to re-manifest itself over and over and maybe it doesn't hold them them hostage either um, so I want to, uh, say thank you very much for, for sharing your insight. Um, and I hope that I can get into more dialogue and learn more moving forward. Probably a, a, a question with multiple questions in it, and then I'll turn it over to CISA. Um, but going back to, you know, education, uh, two parts I want to look at here is the decolonization. And I want you to talk about the five C's, um, but, you know, talking about decolonizing the classroom, an issue that I have uh, in this regard, whether you're, we're talking about anti-racism or, or anything in this regard, is it takes me back. I remember, I think it was actually through the social work, it was through the social work program. We came out here to Juneau uh, for the legislative session, and we had a training on anti-racism. And I honestly don't remember that much about it because I didn't know enough at the time to the vocabulary or, or have the understanding. But I was turned off on it by the time because it felt like this, like they were telling me what I need to do and what my experiences were. And some of them were right and some of them were off. And uh, I feel like, again, in this like diversity, equity and inclusion, and some people do criticize this and I think some of it's right and some of it's way off, but you know, is, is the method of, so decolonizing the classroom to me would, uh, Um, oftentimes, even when I'm taught about that, it, it is using like the traditional banking model of education where somebody sits in the front of the classroom and you sit there and they tell you what you're supposed to do and what you're supposed to know. And I think it's a huge turnoff for a lot of people, especially when it uh, is counter to what they feel or believe, even if that's wrong. And it makes us, I should say us, defensive, people defensive. And uh, I think it's important uh, to focus on the method is, is one of the most important things. And that's what I love about the way that, you know, UAF and the rural human services, you know, utilizing the talking circles, but other things like meditation, uh, you know, these other forms of education that uh, I feel, you know, taps into that heart wisdom, but it's more inclusive and it's not, you know, a, a, I know what you need and I'm going to give it to you and then you can take it and go and do the right thing. It's a, Hey, everybody's experiences are valuable we may differ on ideas and the way that we think or interpret things, uh, but we're going to talk about it and we're all going to listen to each other and we all move forward. Um, but uh, I think it gets anti-racism and whatnot, like in the, with corporate trainings and even sometimes uh, university trainings, I think it gets them a bad 
gets us, them, a bad rap uh, because using those kind of methods, the banking model of education doesn't allow people to tap into that heart wisdom and it makes it resistant. So I just want to know your thoughts on. Um, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion, how, how is that properly done? And, uh, you know, and, and if you could talk about your five C's as well to give us some context. Yeah. Yeah, that's a lot. It's, it's definitely, um, you know, more and more, the, it's all really important. One, it, it's important um, because it opens, uh, opens everyone up for new ways of a good thing and but how we get there like you said is 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 um is the challenge right because we're all coming to these spaces with different experiences and how how we grew up and stuff and um one of the things that you're you're absolutely right like if i lead something or do something around dei uh, a b um it is really not um with intention of judgment and i think we have to start I, when I come into these spaces and we're having these conversations, um, I think we have to release um, um, judgment and bring compassion. And um, you know, people. I think I think we can also model that, right? So, uh, and we can also set up this space for that. One of the things and the ways that I talk to talk a lot about um, is just starting in a good way. Um, and so, you know, when we start in a good way, and that is just things that my elders have taught me, right? That's an important way to begin in anything that we do, whether it's teaching a class, going to a meeting, starting our day, like starting in a good way is really, really powerful. Um, and that can look all kinds of ways, whether it's a talking circle or a prayer or a reading or just walking in nature or connecting um, in some way, like um, nourishing ourselves. But um starting in a good way is, is a really good thing to do. I think um, the other piece is relationality. So, you know, really hear and have compassion, understand and learn from each other. We have to know each other. We have to recognize our humanity together, right? We are all human beings in this space. And like I said in the beginning, if we think about people generally have good intention, right? They, they really want, success for others. They really want to create positive spaces. They really want to feel liked and supported and they want to belong and they want to but there's so much that sets up that makes it a challenge, right? That and creates a barrier for that. But so relationality, um, and this is uh, for those of you that haven't read like Sean Wilson's book, Research is Ceremony. Um, he talks about research in a very different way. And he says, you know, he's reading, he's talking about research and in, in terms of his own experiences. And he he's starting the book with writing a letter to his sons about how, how he is or what it means to be a researcher and um, how that connects to who he is as a human being. And um, one of the things he brings forward in that book is this concept of relationality and relational 
um, uh, accountability. And he said, you know, as researchers, and I always say as, yeah, there you go, Susan has the book there. Um, uh, we, we read it for our research class this year, this semester. Um, one of the things that he says in the book is that, um, you know, when we do work as researchers, uh, we start in a relational way, which means that we have to learn about the people that we're working with or doing research with. And I always any context, it's not just research, but we learn about the people, we learn about what's important to them, the relationships that matter, right? So relationship to land or to nature, to spirit, to seasons, to fish, to subsistence, um, to each other, like just to culture, to uh, all of the things. So we learn as much as we can about who we are engaging with. Um, but he says, you don't just learn about it, but you also are thinking about in your work, how can you be accountable to that, right? to subsistence or seasons in your work, how are you being accountable to that relationship? How are you supporting and uplifting that relationship? And I think that, you know, when you come from that place, it's a really different space, right? So, um, so learning about each other is really a good thing. And unfortunately in a lot of, you know, two hour DEI AB workshops that there's not a whole lot of time for that. So people aren't, um, you know, getting the opportunity to find their commonalities and recognize their um, humanity. And, um, uh, but, but there, I think there are ways to do that even in small amounts of time. Um, and so, you know, and that uh, would be starting in a good way. That would be um, um, thinking about healing centered engagement, ways that we engage with each other in a healing centered way, which I'll talk about in a second. Uh, and um, and just having intention, right? Starting with intention of gratitude, of um, uplifting people's experiences, of listening. And so all of that has to be like that. If we could just even have that discussion, even touch the EIAB, that would be exactly how we want to be. And, and if I've learned anything from elders, the most profound stuff is often the most simple stuff. It, they talk about respect. They talk about listening, listen, right? They talk about, um, uh, you know, uh, sharing and caring is a value, right? So when we are in our space, the spaces together, we're, we're thinking about sharing and caring and um, reciprocity and giving and all of the things. And so, um, so that's a great place to just be for DEIA beat, right? So that, that's just a, a diversity, equity, um, inclusion, access, and belonging, right? So it's really just all, I think that's the biggest part of the work is setting up that space. Um, you can come to the definitions and how things look different later, but um, that's initially, that's the work. Um, the work is around relationality, um, setting your intentions, um, starting in a good way, um, and getting on that um, space of, of compassion and, and non-judgment. Trying to think if there's anything else I wanted to say on DEIAB. I keep wanting to give this back to everyone because I feel like there's so many people in the room that are like, because they're all like so good at this already. So I don't, if anybody else wants to ever add, just do, please. Um, Anything else on that before I go to the five C's, Christian, the DEIA that's coming to your mind? Uh, no, I think that's that's good. And, you know, maybe Cisa and Anne can add some more context in a, in a few. And I know we have, we'll have some questions. So, 
So um, over the over the years, as I've done research and I've talked with elders just in my community and um, I work with elders, uh, I do a lot with elders. I it's it's the most profound space. So literally, we were in research class this past three days um, um, in co-teaching. I was co-teaching with two elders uh, that, um, I, you know, I was talking about Um, and I asked them for their perspectives on that. And whenever the elders chime in, it's kind of like a master class. It's literally in just the amount of time that they spent, they share, they share directly from the heart, um, directly from their connection to spirit. And when they share, it's like, that is, a, that's the whole class. And so I always say it's like a master class, you know, whenever they speak. And so it's so powerful to have elders in your classroom. Not only um, do they create that space of safety and um, support and love, they bring love into the classroom, but that their, their wisdom is a master class in just the short amounts of things that they say, like um, so powerful. Um, but so I've, I've, done a lot with elders. And so there were five C's that kind of rose to the top, um, things that I've learned from elders over time. We've talked about some of them here. Um, and those five C's are compassion, connection, community, curiosity, and ceremony. And uh, that, you know, as I think about how we engage as helpers, whether we're social workers or in other professions or areas, or even just in our lives in general with our family and, and, in, and in community, how do we engage in good ways with people and to do good work together? And um, so those things were the, the five C's that, are, that kind of rose to the top. And um, uh, compassion really is what I talked about, right? So helping people recognize that um, compassion starts with our It's not something I grew up with. And I think that um, the more that I support myself and uh, love myself, the stronger I am, the more compassionate I am for others, the more I'm able to bring that love out to others. So it starts with us a lot. So, you know, a lot of the work that um, I share and do, I do a lot of presentations, a lot of trainings. It really is um, how we are with ourselves first. Because, you know, so much of things like we, like you said, you can get like the finger wagging, we should do this and you should tell people to do this. But really, you know, learning about ourselves, understanding ourselves, accepting ourselves, finding love for ourselves, being compassionate with ourselves, practicing skills ourselves, all of that when we do that can't help but ripple out into the world. Right. It just does. It just does. The energy of that ripples out into the world and it ripples forward into the future, ripples back to our ancestors. Like it's a powerful thing to do when we are able to support our own healing and our own wellness. It really does heal the world. And so. Um, is one of those really powerful things that starts with us and then ripples out. And uh, I already talked a little bit about that, just about the power of compassion, the, the health properties of, of it, and then also the, the how it's catchy and how we can get kind of derailed with uh, the stress of the world and the, the fast pacedness and the, um, a lot of the, the media and all of the stuff that's coming towards us. So we have to be really proactive and practice being compassionate because so many 
hearts and um and it will bring you more peace and it will bring you more joy if you do that um the other uh c is connection and again you know we talked a little bit about this but it's kind of related to relationality right and so i think about connection and in my mind and in the ways in which elders have, um, and my ancestors and my family have taught us is that we're, everything is connected. We are just all connected, right? And so you think about like uh, Chief Seattle's quote, where he talks about, um, you know, man does not weave the web of life, but he is a, but a strand of it, right? And I think about this huge spider web as the universe, and we are like one speck on this spider web. But when we move, it's so delicate, right? When we move, on that spider web and in any way it begins to to go to do that right and so um so think it so it's and you think about if i move in a good way it's sending ripples if i move in a bad way it's still sending ripples so how do we want to move how do we want to be on that web and that's um connection and so connection is that the elders talk about that um as so vital to our health and well-being um, and they don't say connection, but it's built into our language and our, our relationships. I mean, in, in my language, uh, um, kenog, you know, we have um, words like yachgitsi, um, uh, which means my grandfather, and that's a raven, right? It's, it, and it means my, my grandfather. Um, actually, avasoholok uh, is another word in, uh, that we use for spider, which means my dear grandmother.
but ceremony and rituals bring us back, bring us together, allow us to help navigate the challenges that we're faced with, connect us to all things, um, and get us back in into balance. So those are the five C's. And I think, you know, when I talk about these things, um, it's in this framework of healing centered engagement. And again, when we are able to reflect on these things and think about, you know, I didn't get even, I didn't even touch on like, um, you know, the impacts of trauma and the triggers for that. And like thinking about, um, you know, uh, self-regulation and um, trauma-informed care and things like that. But that that's all built in there too. Um, and, and, and part of it is just kind of recognizing that when we can have these conversations naturally on a community level within our organizations, as colleagues, with our clients, with our family members, we're really building that way of engaging that allows us to 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 be our best and be the most effective and efficient that we can be in what we're doing. Um, and I'll just tell one last story before I stop. Um, I uh, work with uh, a lot of different, I work with organizations on healing centered engagement because, you know, as uh, for me, it was like students are, are graduating from our programs and they're going out and they're experiencing this extreme um, you know, just challenge within the organizations, just lots of turnover, high caseloads, low resources, um, and navigating, you know, the stress of that. And when we're all under stress and we're all under pressure, there becomes like this frustration or this negativity or this, you know, that culture of, uh, of um, survival that begins to kind of creep up. And um, we have to be able to navigate that as professionals, right, as social workers, as human beings. And this, uh, I'm, I'm, I just really want to impart that the more that we can practice these tools for ourselves and bring them into the spaces that we're in, um, the better we're going to be at what we do. And so I was working with the, you know, the, there's a climate adaptation program here at the university that works with communities across Alaska, and they build adaptation plans for um, communities are building adaptation plans, right? Because there's a lot happening within climate climate shifts, right? So thinking about like uh, erosion and um, just drought and fires and um, lots of changes in communities. Some communi communities are having to move with uh, from the erosion. Um, this is really stressful. This is like, this is really can bring up lots of grief, can, can bring up lots of anxiety, can bring up lots of fear. Uh, but, but, what they realized is they weren't addressing though those things in the ad adaptation plans, right? They were looking at infrastructure and uh, things like that, but they weren't addressing these these um, uh, you know, uh, these these intense emotional reactions, and um, and so they invited me to do like to share healing centered engagement practices and really talk about you know what some of this looks like when we've experienced trauma and what happens when we are in that space of anxiety and fear. We really, really can't connect to our highest levels when we are in a space of fear, anxiety, stress. We are not in our fully functional brain. We are in a in our, our primal brain where we are in reaction mode, right? And so we can't fully uh, um, engage in collaboration or networking or support to the ways that we can if we were more calm um, if we you know, had um, understood some of the some of the, the ways that trauma impacted us and found compassion for ourselves which then breeds compassion for others and allows us to to do our work together at the highest level so anyway I'll stop there but um, 
yeah, those are the, <laughs> that's a lot. So. Yeah, no, thank you very much. It's a, that was a lot to cover. Um, thank you for sharing. And I want to now uh, turn it over to our co-host, Anne and Cisa. I know you have some questions prepared and uh, yeah, turn the mics over to you two. And we'll have, we'll have uh, questions after I see there's already some in the chat. I feel so much richer listening to all of this amazing discussion. So you were talking, the whole podcast is Awakening the Spirit, Kinship, Healing, and Decolonizing the Flat Classroom. And you so eloquently described that in this whole time um, through connections and wellness using our heart space, ancestral strength, role, those things um, work so well with a research project that we were working on in our classroom, which is called Honoring the Journey, using a relational framework to explore the student experience in higher education. And I was just hoping maybe you could tell a little bit about that research project for us yeah yeah I've been so grateful I feel so grateful um to um to be able to do this with uh, our rural cohort class this semester teaching a research class I'm teaching a research class but I really wanted to approach it in a different way this time so um I asked the students in the beginning if they would consider um you know uh engaging with me uh within the research um, in a in a good way from our our indigenous perspective, and we read the book uh, Research of Ceremony um, and had amazing uh, conversations about what how we can be different in the research process because research in and of itself can be very Western, right? Especially uh, at a university level. Um, and when you think about research um, and especially historical research, there's been harm, a lot of harm that's been done. Um, a lot of the, the ways in which people do research is extractive, right? So you're, you're going into communities and you're taking information. Um, but from perspective, um, it really begins with intentionality, right? So really having that intention of gratitude. It's different. It's a different way of thinking, right? So you're starting first with gratitude, um, thinking about, you know, having the intention of, of giving back, of uplifting voices, of, of um, building relationship, right? And so we really had lots of conversations up front just uh, as we were reading the book and just about how we want to maybe the kind of questions that we not just for participants but for us as researchers and it can be a hopeful process where we really again are uplifting voices and create you know adding diverse perspectives into um, conversations and in, um, in the literature or in you know in practice and so I was just really grateful to to we we, we kind of just fed off of each other the whole time and I didn't really have a, a huge structure I was I was trying to, I mean, you know, basically the goal was to um, really do this research with uh, graduates of the RHS Humes and Social Work Program to understand their journey, um, their experiences within the, um, with, you know, within academia. 
and uh, from a relational lens, from that relational perspective, right? Really trying to say like, what, you know, how was that for you? And what, what did you, what, what was different? And so um, the hope and the, the goal, and we've already kind of, we're, we're kind of nearing the end. We've um, done surveys and, and interviews and sharing circles, and we've probably already have like 20 pages of our paper kind of fleshed out. Um, and we're hoping to publish that and that um, and and give back. And one of the big pieces I think for that was really thinking about like um, helping to uh, uplift the voices of students, um, especially in helping professions, especially students of color, specifically indigenous students, right? But, you know, helping people in academia support um, all that students bring with them, right? From their history to how their, the, their leadership in their community, the, their family, they have all kinds of things going on and responsibilities. Um, and how can we in academia, um, you know, just really also think about supporting and uplifting them? And how do we do this, this um, together? So, Anyway, there was there was a lot of cool things that came from that. I don't know if you want to, is that good, Cesar? Did you want to add anything to that? I think you did a really fine job of describing that. Thank you. Yeah. Looks like you need to turn your volume on. On the very bottom, I think there's a volume. Like, looks like a mic. The down. Sorry. First of all, I want to apologize. Technical. Uh, I keep getting cut out and stuff. But I'm glad I joined and listened to you. You're, um, I'm just really, I could really see this through your self confidence and, you know, and the work that you do and, um, I know that takes a lot, a lot of years of, you know, the things, the things that you went through and um, how you uh, became to where you I just want. I was just curious about um, how, what happened to what interested you in social work to, to get here. Yeah, that, um, you know, when I was in high school, I wanted to, I'm not even sure why, but I thought I would be like a child psychologist. Um, and I used to have like <laughs> these debates with, uh, uh, with a fellow student that wanted to be an underwater welder. <laughs> and he was like, I was like, oh, I would make so much more money. He was like, what? No, you would not make so much more money at that. Um, anyway, you know, that was, it was an interesting thing. So I, even at that, you know, even in high school, I knew I wanted to do something with, with youth and something with the, with the mind. Um, and as I got into school, or as I, as I got older, um, I have uh, nine siblings. So my parents had 10 kids. And so I'm the youngest girl and I have one younger brother and the rest are all older. So, you know, if you're the youngest person, a lot of your older siblings often um, really influence you. And so my elder sister, um, Darlene, in the early 90s from cancer, um, she actually went through this 
program at UAF. Um, she was a social work major. I was in high school and she, she so I would come and visit her and um, she would talk about what she was learning and she actually did her practicum at OCS. And, um, and it's so funny because um, she was one of the founders of a group here called the Alaska Native Social Workers Association, which um, then I ended up when I, when I, because, and so I was really influenced by my sister. And so I, I came into school and went to social work because that's what I knew. That's what I heard her talking about. And, you know, um, started taking classes um, and part, started participating in this group, Alaska Native Social Workers Association, uh, graduated uh, from the BSW. My sister also graduated. She had one class left before uh, um, she was needed to be done that May, um, but uh, because her cancer got so bad, um, or she just worsened a lot, she was um, thinking she wasn't going to graduate. And uh, an elder named Blanche Vest stepped in and petitioned or wrote a letter to the, the university and said, this woman has done everything, almost everything, except this one class. Um, and so um, they accepted that, and she was able to graduate um, before she passed away. And um, with her BSW degree. And um, so I, when I graduated from here, um, I was supported to get my master's in social work at the University of um, Missouri, St. Louis, uh, George Warren Brown School of Social Work at the time, it's now called the Brown School. But, um, and once I completed that, I was recruited back here uh, to teach. And so um, when I started teaching here in 2006, I started taking over this Alaska Native Social Workers Organization as the faculty advisor and, and um, have pretty much until 2019, right before COVID, um, pretty much that whole time was the faculty advisor, uh, along with my co-advisor, um, Gabby from Rural Student Services. We, we basically, you know, um, supported that club. And so it it's, was kind of an interesting thing because it was, I knew it was like my sister had founded it and then, um, so it was really special to me to be able to to be a part of it as a student and then uh, as a faculty advisor later on. So we're we're hoping to revive that club now that um, we're kind of back in back in person and stuff. But yeah, and so that was kind of my um, my how I got into social work. And honestly, you know, I talk about my dad and my mom who um, you know loved us so much, and they. They were such amazing people and there was also trauma in my family. And so having that experience of trauma and just, you know, growing up in a, in a home with addiction um, influenced definitely my, my decision to go into social work too. And so I think what I was seeking a lot was healing at first, a lot of understanding, trying to understand what happened to me and how, why I am the way I am and really exploring that. I think, um, a lot of learning. Any more questions, Cecil or Anne? You guys done? I think we have a last final comment and I'll share that then. At the end? When when we have a final comment or should okay. I share? That's fine. 
Um, yeah, thank you for your contributions, CSNN. I know it's been, just to give everyone some context, like I said, we were all in Fairbanks uh, participating in an intensive cohort, so we didn't have the, the, the typical schedule as far as meeting and preparing for this. So I just want to thank everybody for participating in this, you know, with the limited amount of time and attention we were able to give it. Um, and with that being said, I think we should uh, open it up to questions from the audience. I know we still have some people live. So if you have a question, you can either type it in the chat or you can queue up in the uh, caller section. Um, we do have some stuff in the chat already. So Yuka, I knew that she wasn't going to be able to stay. She says, I have to go to the airport to catch my flight and not sure how long I can listen. I wanted to leave my question before I get cut off. I'd love to hear your experience of language revitalization work. Who do you work with? How did it become the project? What is your struggle surrounding language revitalization? From your perspective, how do you see the connection between language and spirituality? Yeah. Language is a, is a passion of mine right now. Um, and, and it always has been, but, you know, I mentioned that my mom and dad went through the mission, the Catholic mission, and they, my mom remembers knowing the language before that, um, but then never spoke it or um, really um, tried to relearn it after that. And there was just so much trauma, you know, around that at that time that I just, she just didn't, she just didn't teach us and she didn't grow up um, practicing it. And so she lost it over time. Same with my dad. Um, so when I was in my 20s, early 20s, I took a class here at the university. I saw a Degaton class, Degaton language class of all things here at the university. And, and the teacher was Beth Leonard. Uh, and the linguist that was um, supporting that was Alice Taff. And um, so I took that class and there were five elders that came to help participate in that class from my region. And um, I didn't really know them because remember, I didn't grow up in Holy Cross. I grew up in Inanna and Anchorage. Um, so I didn't know them that well, but they knew me and they knew um, my, my, um, my family. And so they would tell me stories about my, like I told you, my grandpa Joe and about my family. And, um, and they told me that they were so proud of me for, for learning and speaking and that they really just loved listening to me speak um, and it's so funny because I teach the language now. I facilitate language classes, workshops on Zoom, and then I um, am, am an active learner. So I've, you know, engaged. I've done a lot of documentation over the years. And uh, we went to um, Shagluk, uh, gosh, maybe two years ago now to do some language work with Doyon Foundation. Um, they're doing a, a Doyon Languages Online project and putting the, the, the 10 languages of the interior on um, on. Uh, recordings on online and so so I was helping with the Dekinog language and so we went there and I remember listening because we had young people from from there do some recordings and I remember going oh my gosh they sound so good it just made my heart so happy and I was like oh my gosh I know what the elders felt when they were listening to me speak right because it's such a beautiful thing and to hear it from from children um it's so sweet and so precious and um and I give gratitude all the time I know I talked about this before but you know um I think about my elders um Jim Dementi and Edna Deacon, who, and others, so many others, right, who carried the language forward during times of, of rapid change and just um, intense grief and so much challenges with the colonization and, and assimilation and boarding schools and all of that. Um, so now I, I really 
do feel that I have a responsibility because that's part of who we are, right? Part of who we are is we, we experience things, we learn the things we need to learn, and then we pass that forward. We share that out. And so, um, so that's kind of where, where I'm thinking, but, you know, I think about, um, language revitalization today and, and from a social work perspective and being a social worker as well. Um, you know, when I first started speaking, I used to wonder like, who would I talk to? Because right now we have probably, you know, maybe less than five fluent speakers left of our language. Um, we have lots of beautiful uh, recordings and lots of documentation. We have, um, lots of young people that are interested in, in coming, they come to the class and are learning. We have lots of interest. And in, so I have lots of hope around it today, but I didn't start off that way. I started off wondering who would I talk to? Like how I don't have anybody to practice with and feeling really not hopeful about it. Um, and over the years I've created this community of language uh, learners that are my family. Um, and, and, um, and as we have done language together, we have like healed together uh, and grown together. And I've become more connected to who I am as a Degaton person and understand more of who I am, where I come from. And, um, and I think, you know, when it, sometimes we'll have um, sessions where um, I really wanted to create a space where there was um, a lot of love and joy in the language because, um, so much of it in the past was, uh, was, was based on fear, right? You, you had, you literally had the language beaten out of you. And so you can imagine then trying to relearn. And there was a lot of like, I'm not sure if I'm saying it right, or I don't want to say it. I really, I don't have it. I can't learn, right? We have all of these messages that we were instilled from that, from the past hundred, 200 years of how, you know, we, we can't learn or we can't say it right. And, you know, all of these things. Um, and so I think it's so important um, because language is attached to wellness. Our language is attached to wellness. And if you think about even um, most people's first language, if that's the, the ways in which they express themselves emotionally, they can do it best in their first language, right? So if they're able to express themselves in the language, their first uh, um, language, that that is going to reach the most uh, internal part of them. Uh, language is connected to wellness in so many, so many ways, identity, belonging, connection, wellness. And, um, and I think we have to build spaces where there's no judgment, where we are in this together, where we change the narrative from, I don't know my language, we lost it, it's dying, to, hey, we, we have 10,000 years of speaking our language and our ancestors um, supporting us to reclaim that back, right? And when we can break down the fear and the anxiety and the worry and find the love in the language and the joy and the connection to spirit is when we're going to really begin to see it grow again. So part of our job, I think, right now is to begin to help people, support people um, in releasing, and I'm not saying letting go, um, but just like um, healing, right, from from the attack on our language and our our, our ways of uh, worldviews and ways of thinking, and reclaiming and being more empowered back into that. Because, um, yeah, the more that we do that, the more you're going to see a wellness kind of spread across the 
the land. And you already see it, like I totally already see it. There's so much amazing language work being done across Alaska right now. And so many people just embracing that. And you see it all over Facebook. I see it here at the university. I, I think that anytime we have an opportunity if we're speaking anywhere, if we're doing anything, we should bring language in at some point, talk about it, bring some words in, let people hear it, be, let it become um, part of who we are again. So thanks for the question, Yuka. I'm so grateful to you, Yuka, for the language work that you're doing too. Yuka's doing amazing work in her region. Yeah, and just to give a shout out to Yuka, one uh, social work student of the year. Oh, she's still here. So congratulations, Yuka. big shout out to you and thank you for the question as well. Sorry, you're sorry you've been uh, experiencing travel problems. Uh, part of the part of the life in, in rural Alaska when you're a part of cohort programs. Um, still a little bit of time for questions. So if you have one, get it in soon. I don't think we have anybody in the call or queue, uh, but we do have Heather wants to know she signed up for your class trauma and wellness. She wants to know if you'll be teaching it through an indigenous perspective. Maybe give some insight on that class. Honestly, these days, Heather, I, can't, I don't think I can do it any other way. <laughs> That's just who I am. So all of that comes through. And yes, it will be um, very much from an indigenous perspective. I'm looking forward to it. I'm so glad you signed up. All right. Thanks, Heather. And uh, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. I really appreciate it. Uh, looks like we're drawn to a close in the uh, podcast. So uh, I just want to take a brief moment to thank you, uh, Laverne, Dr. Laverne Dementif, for generously, graciously donating your time, your wisdom, your experiences, your energy. Um, I really appreciate it. Uh, and I feel very privileged to have had the opportunity to learn from you, to have you as a colleague, to have you as a mentor. Um, I'm always, I'm sure as many other people, I'm watching the way that you do things and reflecting on it and trying to, um, you know, embody some of those characteristics that you have uh, in myself. So thank you for your contribution to my life. Thank you for your contribution to all the other students. And uh, most of all, right now, thank you for your contribution to this podcast. Dr. Dan. Any, uh, any last words, Laverne? You know, I'm always grateful. Um, I'm grateful that, you know, that, that you are back with us. So you kind of come full circle being a student to now being a faculty, kind of my same journey, but even more like, you know, I think this podcast is amazing. I'm grateful. I'm just grateful. I'm grateful for CISA, grateful for Anne and uh, all of the students, um, yeah, we just have a lot of possible. There's just so many possibilities. Let's just do stuff and be, find joy and find rest uh, in the work that we're doing. And um, yeah, so we are we are in this together. And I like the way that you said that. You know, sometimes projects, just such as this podcast in itself, can be a lot of work. You know, but I think ultimately, when we're doing the best and when they produce the best results, is when we're finding joy and when it's not like work. And we're finding joy and participating in the dialogue, finding joy and, you know, creating ideas and, and, and basically connecting with each other. And uh, yeah. So again, I really appreciate it. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Um, I really appreciate your time and uh, everything that you've given to the podcast this morning. Um, and thank you to CISA and Anne. I think we may have lost Anne, but uh, 
Cisa, I wanted to, uh, again, thank you for doing this on such, uh, you know, kind of not necessarily short notice, but we really didn't have the proper time or energy to prepare the way that we should have. And so I want to thank you for being um, flexible and, you know, willing to, to push through. And I just also wanted to give a shout out to you, Cisa, you know, you really embody a sense of, of the word I'm looking a sense of power, but a, a, like a caring spirit. And it's really contributed to, you know, to myself, but also to the, to our cohort, the classes, the talking circles that we participate in. And I can't even put it to words, you know, and a lot of that's confidential based on the circle, but I just want you to know that uh, you and Anne too, but, I, um, you know, I really respect you, Cisa, and I really want to thank you for your contribution to, to me, to, to, to um, you know, our cohort and, and to this podcast. Do you have any last words? Thank you. So something that really stood out to me and I really feel like I wanted to share about it is because I really appreciate the honesty that's shared through the, throughout this podcast and talking about wellness and how we live our lives and then ancestral strength and resiliency and how all of our experiences that we have, whether good or bad in our lives, they um, help lead us toward healing together. And then so one thing, and that really um, helps me to define my own healing path. And um, something that Laverne had mentioned was about her dad. And through all of this discussion we've had, I feel like, um, I feel like Laverne, you've been, um, you could feel, you could feel the person your dad was outside of his alcoholism. You could feel all his strengths and wisdom and love and, you know, passion. And I think that's the true spirit of ancestral resilience and strength and love. And I feel like you really emulate the parts of your dad that you hold dear in your heart. And um, I felt like that was really coming forward for me while I was listening and hearing all of this, because um, when I think back about our ancestors and um, like Christian mentioned, he, he envisioned he was holding hands with his um, ancestor and that's all a part of our intergenerational healing, I feel like, and talking about our sacred space that we go to, to, you know, to meditate and to feel our wholeness about ourselves. All of this was just really, really made me feel passionate and inspired about the work that we do. So thank you so much. Thank you, Cisa. Always so thoughtful. All right. Well, that brings us to the end. Um, you can find episodes right here on the call-in app. Well, let me say, some of you may be saying, how is this uh, episode 11? I can't even find episode 10. Well, I don't mean to talk bad about our platform on the platform, but Colin uh, has been struggling with the video and the audio. And so I really apologize because we put some, together some really cool episodes and sorry to the students that have participated. Uh, but I don't have episode 10 back yet. The, it was last week it was with uh, Kim Swisher. And when I uh, produced the episode and, and, and posted it, Kim was just not there, no audio and no video. So when I asked the question, it was just looking at my face for the next five minutes when nobody was talking. So they've had problems in the past and they fixed it. So I'm hoping that uh, they'll get that up. So if you're looking for episode 10, it'll be up soon. Um, hopefully this one's all good. And if it is, then it'll be up here on call in in just a moment. And then it will uh, populate in uh, 
Spotify and uh, uh, Apple Podcasts later today. Um, we'll be broadcasting here every Saturday at 10 a.m. Alaska time. So join us next week. Um, I have a, an old friend of mine. Her name is Mel. She lives up in Uteagovic and Barrow. And she uh, is going to talk about how she's managed to uh, stay well over all the many years that she spent up there in the Arctic, you know, 24-hour darkness in the wintertime. So she does a lot of things like uh, hosts uh, Zumba sessions for the community up there, and she's been doing it for decades. So looking forward to speaking to her. Um, the Critical Social Work is a collaborative effort between the University of Alaska Fairbanks Department of Social Work and a Conscious Party Productions. And this episode was hosted by Christian, Cisa, and Anne. Again, I want to thank everybody, all the listeners. Thank Laverne. Thank my two co-hosts, Anne and Cisa. It's been great. Uh, we're out of here. Thanks. Conscious Party Production, brought to you by the University of Alaska Fairbanks Department of Social Work, and listening to The Critical Social Worker, a revolutionary storytelling podcast. Your story, my story, our story. Peace, everyone. Have a great day.